Well, back in the day when I was in the business world, I was trying to build a marketing agency. And in a marketing agency, one of the things that you think about a lot is who your clients are. And depending on how big of a logo they have, a recognizable brand kind of enhances your status. So one day, as you're sitting there as a team, we got a call from a very big brand. Somebody who, if I said their name, you would recognize, and I'm going to not say their name to protect their innocence, but they called and said, we want to do work with you. And we thought, man, this is it. This is our big break. This is where we get to make more money, have more fun, do better projects. And based on who they were on paper and what their logo was, we thought this was going to be it. Now, at the same time, we got a phone call from a nonprofit company. And typically, when you're in a marketing agency, if you get called by a nonprofit, you get ready to not make profit, right? They don't have the budget to do the cool projects that you want to do typically. So for us, we judged them completely at first glance and said, well, we'll, we'll talk to them, but we're not sure this is going to work out. Well, fast forward to months later, and uh, we were pulling our hair out because this big brand with the great logo was impossible to work with. They were rude to us. They didn't pay quickly. They constantly nickel and dimed us. They did all the things that would say that they thought they were better than us, and they didn't work collaboratively with us as a team. Once we dug into the inside of who they were and we got into their business, we realized that's how they treated everybody. Their culture was toxic. But we would have never known that based on what we saw on the outside. And, and on the flip side, this nonprofit turned out to be one of our best clients. They were kind. They were gentle. They were collaborative. Uh, they constantly worked with us to do really creative projects. And it ended up being the most fun work that our team had ever done. And so it was a great lesson for us within this agency. And, and early on is when we learned this lesson, praise God, because we started to develop a framework. We sat down as a team and said, hey, we can't judge a business by its logo. We need to start having a better way to analyze who we work with. So we started developing metrics and, and filters for who we should work with. And, and you know what those things were? They were all about who the people were. How do they treat each other? What's their culture like? We would ask people on the phone. Uh, we were almost interviewing clients uh, while they were interviewing us. We would say, what's it like to work there? And if people were excited to work there and, and they understood the importance of the work they were doing and they liked going into work and treating others well, then we would dive in. And, and you know, over the years, uh, some, some big logos, they were great clients. And some weren't. And some small nonprofits that seemed like they would be quaint and nice to work with, they, they weren't nice to work with. And some of them were. It just didn't matter what it was looking like on the outside. What mattered was what was going on in the inside. And that's an important backdrop for as we dive into James 2, 1 through 13 this morning, talking out of, all about impartiality, right? But before we dive into that, I want you to think about the attributes of God. I also want to set a backdrop of the attributes of God, thinking about who God is. Now, when you think about the attributes of God, you probably think about his holiness. You probably think about his justice, his sovereignty, right? You might think about all the omnis, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. You might even think about his immutability, his inability to change. Those are all things we think about when we sit down to do a, you know, a study on the attributes of God. But do you often think about God's impartiality? It's something that I think we often overlook. His impartiality is so important to salvation, to how the reason we're all sitting here, that we've put our trust in Jesus Christ. The only way we could have done that is because God's impartiality. 
That's something we're going to unpack today a little bit more. And that's something that James really hits on. At first glance, when you look at James 2, 1 through 13, you you might just see this is about not judging people from their appearance. And, And granted, that's a lot of what James is talking about. But underneath the surface, deep inside of what he's saying, it is really related to who God is himself. And the Greek word for impartiality or for partiality here is, uh, is a word that literally means lifting up someone's face. Lifting up someone's face. So impartiality is, is looking at someone's face and determining what's on the inside immediately, just like we did in our marketing agency. Oh, look at that logo. They must be great to work with. And here's a curious fact. The, the word uh, that this Greek word for partiality is only found in Christian writings during this time. And that really might speak to the fact that during this time in the culture that the early church was in, and this sounds pretty familiar to ours, it was very appropriate to judge someone based on their status, based on their Instagram account, so to speak, right? They, they really liked judging people, uh, and we're going to see in our story here, based on what they wore on their hands, what they wore on their body, who they were on the outside. Now, the dictionary defines partiality as an unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another, favoritism. And today we're going to interchange the word partiality with favoritism. It's a really easy, interchangeable word. And I think that's easier for our culture, right? When's the last time you used partiality in a sentence? Probably not lately, but favoritism is something that we can understand. So is God partial? Well, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 says this, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Masters, Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. There's no partiality with God. God doesn't look at outward appearances. Instead, he looks at the soul. He looks at the heart. And that's something that we need to make sure we remember as we dive into today's passage. Just think back to your salvation. Think back to that moment when you were freed from sin, both eternally and in this life, You are no longer a slave to the bondage of sin. It had nothing to do with your appearance. It had nothing to do with your status. It had nothing to do with your bank account. Praise God for that, right? I got saved when I was poor. And that would have been hard for me to get saved if it was based on my bank account. It didn't have anything to do even with your good works. You could grow up in the church your entire life. There's youth kids in this church right now that are growing up in great homes that serve the church diligently. None of that matters when they stand before Jesus Christ as an unsaved person. They must repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And it's by grace alone, through faith, that they'll be saved. Has nothing to do with those things that we bring to the table. And so based on that, perhaps nothing is more antithetical to biblical salvation than partiality. I mean, think about it. What could be more antithetical to biblical salvation than partiality when God himself is completely impartial? And that is why we're all sitting here. Those of us who are saved, who put our trust in Jesus Christ. God goes out of his way to show us that appearance, status, bank accounts, or comparison to others have no bearing on how he views us. As a matter of fact, God's process of getting to the soul of the matter seems to almost discount appearances. 
So the last will be first and the first will be last. Matthew 20, 16. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 39. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 25. So it's important for us to remember as we dive into today's passage that God looks at the heart. He looks at the soul, not the body, not the software, or not the hardware, so to speak, but the software. Let's put it down like this for point number one. Remember that God shows no favoritism. Remember that God shows no favoritism. And I said remember because we need to remember because when we were saved in that instance, and some of us know the exact day, time, you know, minute that we were saved, and some of us know the general region but think about that time when we became a new creation and we no longer live for ourselves and live for Jesus Christ. It was not hard to remember in that moment that God shows no favoritism because we were overwhelmed with gratitude for how he saved us. But we, as we walk more and more with Christ, we need to remember what that was like. We need to remember that God shows no favoritism. As you grow in the Lord and you become more in tune with what the word of God says, you have more of a, a successful battle with sin in your life. As you walk along other brothers and sisters who are new in that walk, we need to not show favoritism to those who are strong in their faith over those who are weak because we were once there as well. So the first one in our passage this morning, we're just going to read verse 1 to start with. It says this in James 2 uh, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So right here, James is just saying, hey, don't show any partiality and remember who Jesus Christ is. Let's turn to John 4 to get a good example of, of really, it's, it's really a great example of showing us that God shows no favoritism. We're going to see Jesus Christ with the woman at the well. And if you've been here week after week with Pastor Ben and John, it wasn't too long ago that he went through this passage, right? And we learned about the woman at the well and how remarkable it was what this story meant as we unpacked the depth of what Jesus was really doing here. How Jesus was bringing salvation to the enemies of the Jews, to those that they didn't even want to be around. He was breaking down barriers and laws and rules that existed that were man-made in order to bring the gospel to both the Jew and the Gentile. And so this is a remarkable passage about impartiality. Let's start in verse 1. And let's read through verse 7 just to get an idea of how Jesus gets into this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near, a field, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is already tired, right? Remember, we went through this before. He's tired. He's going through an area that they normally wouldn't go through. And, and Jews considered this hostile territory, or at least territory that they didn't really want to step foot in. It wasn't a good look for them. And so in verse 7 here, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. So right away in verse 7, we see this woman coming and asking for water. And, you know, Jews kept clear of Samaritans because they didn't want to be unclean. It was, it was said that if they spent more time than usual with a Samaritan, they'd actually be ceremonially unclean. So here Jesus is saying, hey, can you give me a drink? He's, he's about to settle in and spend some time with this woman. He's not showing favoritism to who the Jews would normally show favoritism to. Second, look ahead here at verses 17 and 18. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said true. You know, her social status was not good. This was not somebody that you'd want to hang out with to gain a good reputation. So right away, Jesus is breaking down that barrier. It's not somebody who, uh, you know, would be walking down the sidewalk here into our church and you would run up and say, hey, how's it going? You'd be hesitant based on the culture you grew up in. But Jesus, he doesn't hesitate. You know, she was living in sin with the man that she was currently with as well. That didn't scare Jesus. That's why he was there, to heal the sick. He said time and time again in Scripture, who needs medicine? The sick. And he recognized this woman needed the gospel just as much as anybody else. So being around this woman could look bad, but Jesus broke through that. Third, drop down to verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. So not only is Jesus here in Samaria, he's about to settle and spend time with a Samarian, which would make him unclean. He's with a woman, woman who has a notorious reputation, right? And, and now the, the, the disciples come up and are like, you're not even supposed to be talking to a woman, Right? Uh, Pastor Ben said when he was up here before going through this passage, it was known that in public and in the streets, you didn't want to talk to a woman if you were a man in the Jewish culture, not even your wife. So here's Jesus just settling down, talking to this woman over a drink at the well. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like Jesus does things deliberately throughout his ministry, perhaps to draw special attention to the impartiality of the gospel. We see this time and time again. Romans 3, 23, 24 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's go back to our passage in James and continue to see the problem of partiality described a little bit further. Let's go in verse two and let's read through verse seven. James 2, verse 2 through 7. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So we clearly see a big contrast to what we saw with Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. This is almost the opposite situation to the way Jesus treated this woman. So we want to first remember that God shows no favoritism, but in response to that, you want to, point number two, treat others how God treats you. Treat others how God treats you. Now, this may hit a little close to home. Maybe this happened to you just in the last few days, those of you with kids. We had Christmas morning, right? And our kids wake up and they run downstairs, uh, you know, into the living room, let's just say, and uh, under the tree, if you just have a typical American Christmas, there's some gifts there, right? Gifts they did nothing to deserve. I love my kids, but that's what we do on Christmas, right? This is a, a model of Christ's grace, his gracious gift. We give gifts to each other for no reason other than we love other people. 
And that's a model of what Christ did, what he came into the world to do on Christmas. He came to live the perfect life and die the death we deserved to give us this salvation that we don't deserve, right? So we're sitting here getting gifts we don't deserve, all of us, whether it's from our parents, our our grandparents, whoever it is. And we're opening up these gifts and oh, we're so grateful. The kids are so grateful. They start playing with their toys. And what, half an hour later, one of their siblings wants to come play with their toy and what do they do? No, that's mine. Right? It's, it's the unforgiving uh, debtor, uh, the parable of unforgiving debtor right there in our living room. Right? They don't want to let others play with the gift they did nothing to deserve. That's their gift now. Right? And it's a real example of we want to treat others how God treats us. Just like we want our kids to treat their siblings in that moment how we've treated them. We've gone through all the trouble to get these gifts, to wrap them, put them under the tree because we love them. We want them to enjoy them. But they want to, we want them to remember why we did what we did. So how does God treat us? Well, first he loved us as his enemy. It says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, praise God, right? He loved us regardless of what we look like, where we came from, our social status. We were his enemy. Not only were we his enemy, but we didn't do anything to reach out to him. He loved us first, it says in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he loved us first. Because of the way God loves us, we should love others regardless of how they love us, what they look like, where they came from, their social status. We're going to see through verse 7 that there are two major problems with partiality, at least two that I want to highlight. There's several more, but let's think about two major ones. One, it gives glory to people instead of Christ, those we favor. When we favor someone, like this rich man with the gold ring on his finger, when he did nothing, actually he did things opposite of deserving that glory. Right? We give glory to people instead of Christ. It denies people the gospel, those we don't favor Here's this poor man walking into this assembly, and we tell him to just get out of our way. Go sit somewhere at my feet. It denies him to see the gospel in action. So it gives glory to people instead of Christ, and it denies people the gospel. So who was this rich man? Let's unpack this a little bit. We look here in verse 2 and 3. Who was this rich man? Verse 2 says he was wearing a gold ring. You know, rings were a big deal back then. It was kind of like a social status to walk into a room and to have rings. And sometimes you'd have rings across most of your fingers, and, and that was a way of kind of showing the pecking order of where you sat in the social status. Guys, rings were such a big deal that they had ring rental services. You could rent a ring to go to a party. And gold, that was at the top of the food chain of luxury back then. So here comes this man with his gold ring. You know, maybe he made some people kiss it on the way and who knows, you know, but he walks in and immediately everyone rushes around and says, man, this guy is the real deal, right? Maybe some of the people in that congregation were like, this guy could really help us with taking ground. Let's put him over there, right? He could help us with our building project. Let's make sure he has the best seat where the air doesn't hit him right in the back of the neck all service, right? Right? Well, who's the rich man now? Because that's where we live, right? Who's the rich man now? Yes, it could be someone like that, but we also want to get a little deeper into the heart of the matter. This is someone who has the means to help us more than we can help them, right? Somebody who we can get something from if we start to engage with them. You know, this is someone who's going to raise our status. 
and someone who can make us more comfortable. Those are the type of things we want to start praying about when we start thinking about what James is saying here when it comes to favoritism. Do we find ourselves buddying up with people and more likely to go up to people and introduce ourselves and become friends with people when they can make us more comfortable, when they can raise our status, when they can provide something for us that we can't provide them back? Well, let's look at verse 3 again. Who's this poor man then? On the contrary to the rich man, who's the poor man? Well, he didn't have any status or ability to provide for himself. You know, this guy, just to paint the picture, he probably had one robe. He probably had one robe that he wore all the time. And think about that back then. Walking around in that robe day after day. Sweating in that robe. Working in that robe. Sleeping in that robe. He probably didn't smell very good. He probably didn't look very good. And you know what? They tell him to find a place next to the footstool. So imagine, you know, this guy's walking in and somebody has a chair and a footstool and they're not even willing to give him the footstool. They're telling him to sit down next to his footstool, right? That, that's how low they thought of this man who walked into their congregation. And you can see throughout the Old Testament that God sets up several systems to protect the poor. Let's just think about a few here. God's heart was for the poor. And here comes this man whose God heart, God's heart is to protect. And, and they put him next to the footstool on the floor. Just basically this idea of get out of the way. We've got, we've got a service to put on here. We've got an assembly to have. And we don't really want you in the way. Well, God made a special provision for those who were poor to bring the prescribed offering we see in Leviticus 1. Right? If you couldn't bring the prescribed offering, God made a provision for that. Every seventh year, debts were canceled, we see in Deuteronomy 15. Every 50 years, a jubilee was celebrated in which slaves could be set free from masters in Leviticus 25. And crops, we've all probably heard this story before about gleaning, right? Crops were not to be completely harvested and vineyards not completely picked so that the poor could glean food. We see that in Leviticus 19. God's heart is for those who can't help themselves. Well, who is the poor man now? Who's the poor man now? And this is what we want to kind of think about, start to pray about in our lives. How do we apply James 2, 1 through 13 in our own lives? Well, it could be the poor, right? We do need to realize that Jesus said the poor will always be with you. And we need to uh, help the least of these. Jesus even says very clearly in scripture, we help Christ when we help the least of these. So we need to keep our eyes out for those in need in our lives. Pray about who God might bring into our lives that need care. You know, we gave those gift cards to the kids who were needy at Pathways School this year. You guys really stepped up big. And you helped people who were, by definition, poor. Right? They didn't have the means to help themselves to come down the stairs and have gifts underneath the tree. And you guys stepped up big to do that. And we need to continually do that. But we also want to get to the heart of the matter even more. Perhaps think about the opposite of, of the rich man nowadays. This person might have nothing to offer us and no way to pay us back. Right? Nothing to offer us and no way to pay us back. Being around them might lower our status. And they could make us less comfortable, right? We need to be careful as a church that as we start, as we continue to grow and as we see new people and guests come to our church, we don't analyze them as they're walking down the sidewalk coming in and kind of go through the checklist of who we think they are. Just like as a marketing agency, we couldn't do with those logos, right? We're talking about people. We're talking about souls getting to the heart of the matter. We need to be careful that we're not, we're avoiding being around those people who are going to lower our social status or make us less comfortable or take things from us that they need that they could never pay us back. And any of you that have given to people or come alongside people in those seasons, 
or in those categories knows there's nothing closer to the heart of Christ than being around people like that. Because that's ultimately who Jesus was when we think back to how we were saved. Let's go back to our passage and read again starting in verse 8. Let's start looking at a little bit more of what James is going to unpack when it comes to partiality. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has, been, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James here seems to kick the conversation into another gear starting in verse 9. Right? Perhaps this audience, we know who they are, right? We've talked about it before as we've been in James in this biblical behavior series. This audience are Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish, who converted to Christianity after Jesus Christ, right? The early church, these are people who maybe are suffering from some old habits. Think about being a Jew and really judging people based on their exterior. A lot of what the Jews did, we see that from the Pharisees, was judging from appearances and from behavior. And these Christians were probably struggling to overcome some of those old habits. And James goes on, not only is partiality a sin, but it's not something, if it's not something they repent of, right? If it's not something ultimately that they are convicted by, when James tells them this and they repent of, they should honestly and seriously consider if they are even redeemed. This is a big deal. James is talking about salvation here. And it kind of you know, makes us, James always makes us uncomfortable with this whole like uh, faith and works thing, right? We constantly have to walk through that in the book of James. But James is saying here, hey guys, partiality is evidence of an unredeemed heart. That's a big deal. James wants his audience to see favoritism as a serious sin. And clearly God wants us to, point number three, see favoritism as a serious sin. We need to see favoritism as a serious sin. The royal law in verse 8 is really referring to all of God's law. All of God's law, right? But if we remember, you probably instantly thought of Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40, when Jesus sums up the entire law with two commandments. Because that's really what James is referring to here. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. And this is where James is referring to. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And if we see in verses 10 and 11 here, favoritism is so serious that James is saying, unrepentant favoritism is a sign of being an unbeliever. You are a, he calls it a transgressor of the law. James is really saying, don't compartmentalize biblical obedience. Okay? Don't compartmentalize 
biblical obedience. Partiality is the same, on the same level as murder or adultery. When we treat others based on their outward appearance, we're doing the opposite of who God is as we looked at in point number one. And we start to become the opposite of God's heart in that. Verse 12 in our passage says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We want to act as if we will be judged someday. Right? Because if we're sitting here as a repentant believer, we know ultimately that if partiality comes up in our life, we're in a life group or we're serving alongside someone or we're sitting in our living room and our, our spouse says, hey, you know, that sermon really convicted me. And we start talking through that with him. When we realize we've got some things to repent of, that's how God works, right? We're not perfect. We still have sin in our lives. Are we all going to do things that look like impartiality? Yes, we're all going to do it, including me. So I'm not saying if you commit the sin of impartiality that you aren't saved. What I'm saying is the sin of impartiality gone unrepented is a sign that maybe our hearts haven't been conformed to God's heart. And that's something that we should do. Paul tells us in scripture all the time to test ourselves, to ask the question, am I really walking with the Lord? And the answer, if you put your trust in Christ, is yes. But it'll start to get in there and do the work that it needs to do. And thinking of two judgments, right? I want to make this clear. There's two judgments. There's one judgment called the great white throne judgment. It's referenced in Revelation 20.12, right? And this is if your name isn't in the book of life. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, you stand before the Lord in the great white throne judgment, and you ultimately have to stand and give an account for the sin in your life. Those of us who've put our trust in Christ will never stand before God in that judgment because Christ already paid the penalty. And that is an amazing thought. We never have to stand and pay the punishment for our sin in front of the Lord. That's for the unsaved. That's for the unrepentant. And that should give us the chills a little bit and force us to evangelize, to spread the gospel. Because our neighbors down the street, they're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and give an account for their sin and then pay for it for eternity. It's uncomfortable. Merry Christmas, right? It's uncomfortable. We, we love Christmas, but this is the other side of the coin, guys. We have to be aware of the fact that this comes. And then there's this second judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment. And that's where you and I are going to stand as repentant believers, as redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. And this is a time where we stand before Jesus. Uh, we can reference that in 2 Corinthians 10 or Romans 14.10. And this is where we, we, we decipher the rewards that we get for this life. And I've talked about that before. We, we do work for Jesus Christ on this earth, and we stand before him, and we see those rewards come to fruition for eternity forward. And we won't stand there and, and, and give an account for the sin that we've committed and pay a punishment for it. No, we'll just be scrutinized, right? And so I think it's important as Christians to remember this once in a while, that we will stand before Christ, and we will analyze our lives. Because we should have such a distaste for sin because of who Jesus is. And it should cause us to repent and to be sad when we sin, to be sorrowful and to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus Christ continually because we are not ever going to be perfect. We're going to sin over and over again in this life. Like, well, like we said, it's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction. We should be sanctified, right? We're justified when we put our trust in Christ. That's the first step of salvation. We're justified. One pastor put it, just as if I'd, I'd never sinned before, right? We're justified. We can stand before Christ when we pass away and we meet him face to face in, in an instant. We can stand confident because Christ has paid for that sin. But then we're sanctified. We should grow in our faith over time and sin less 
as we move forward. You know, one pastor put it this way, to think of the great white throne judgment and the BMC judgment. And this is important because sometimes we get uncomfortable with this idea of the word judgment as Christians because we're like, wait a minute, there's no condemnation in Christ. Right, there's no condemnation, Right? But think about it like the county court versus the county fair. The county court, the gavel's going down and you're getting sentenced to be punished for your crime. Right? That's not what we experience. It's more like the county fair. Right? We put our pie in the pie-making con- pie contest and that pie is scrutinized. It's judged. And we get a reward. We get a ribbon for that one way or the other. But at the end of the day, we're going to learn from that experience. So that's important for us to remember when it comes to impartiality because, guys, I think it's become more and more difficult to remain impartial. This world is dividing everybody. Everybody. And in this church, there's plenty of things that we disagree on. Hallelujah, we can agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we need to be aware of this. Favoritism, because it's based on worldly filters. You know, we, we filter based on worldly filters, Right? We think of things in worldly terms. We look at someone's face. We start to analyze who they are. We look at their dress. We look at the, what they're wearing. This can put us in friendship with the world if we start to analyze people over and over again this way. And 1 John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. It's, it's, uh, it's an important verse for us to realize when we come to the seriousness of favoritism. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desires of the flesh, what feels good. The desires of the eyes, what looks good. The pride of life, what raises our status. Right here, John is basically talking about the very thing that we do when we analyze people and we decide, can they raise our status? Can they make us more comfortable? Can they give us something that we couldn't possibly have otherwise? So what if you know if you've been struggling with favoritism? You're convicted this morning. You're saying, man, I've been doing this. Well, repent. The Bible says repent. Turn from that, right? And God will honor that. He will help you in that. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to believe that. right? We need to repent and move on and trust that God is going to do that work in our heart to grow us. What if we don't know if we've been playing favorites? Well, we need to pray. Right? We need to pray. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. A great psalm. A great prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to pray for God to search our heart. This is a sneaky sin, favoritism. Even as I've been preparing this, I've been praying myself. Man, this is difficult to discern sometimes. The game I'm playing with favoritism. Lord, get in there. Help me to know my heart. To know if I've been committing this sin. Again, Verse 13 in our passage says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James kind of caps off this section with this idea of mercy. Right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is one of the greatest pieces of evidence of a redeemed heart. Because that is what God ultimately displayed to us on the cross. The dictionary definition of mercy, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. We have the ability to punish or harm someone. We can kind of lord that over them. But when we show mercy to them, we are putting God's character on display. And that's what James is saying. As repentant Christians, as believers, 
have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and transformed to be more like Christ, we should show others mercy. That makes me think of the parable of the unforgiving servant starting in Matthew 18, right? This idea of we've been forgiven much. We need to forgive others. As the enemy approaches the throne of God, attempting to accuse us because we know he does that, one of the greatest exhibits of Christ's likeness is mercy. It's directly contrary to our sinful nature. It it kind of defends us in the court of law, so to speak, in front of the accuser. Now, I remember learning about a specific study. You guys have probably heard this before, the Stanford Prison Experiment. You guys ever heard about this? I heard about this in college, and it's fascinating. It's basically showing us what we already know from the Bible of what man's heart is like by nature. See, they wanted to see what the psychological effects were of becoming a prisoner or a prison guard. They chose 24 average men from around the Stanford area, and they decided to pay them $15 a day. Hey, come be a part of this experiment. Knowing what I know about those experiments now, I would never do that, right? This is a trap. And a paragraph from the actual study says this, Our study of prison life began then with an average group of healthy, intelligent, middle-class males. These boys were arbitrarily divided into two groups, so just randomly divided into two groups by a flip of a coin. Okay? If the coin toss went one way or the other, you'd either be a prisoner or a guard. So just keep that in mind. Half were randomly assigned to be guards, the other prisoners. It is important to remember that at the beginning of our experiment, there were no differences between boys assigned to be a prisoner and boys assigned to be a guard. And and here's what happened. One professor summed up what happened. Our planned two-week investigation into the psychology of prison life had to be ended after only six days because of what the situation was doing to the college students who participated. In only a few days, our guards became sadistic and our prisoners became depressed and showed signs of extreme stress. What happened was, and I've seen footage of it before, these guards took on the persona of being completely in charge and lording over their power to the prisoners. And the prisoners started to uh, feel like prisoners who were being mistreated. But these guards are ultimately what I'm focusing on. They had no ability within themselves to show mercy. Right? We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us, to show others mercy because our sinful heart wants power and wants to treat others not how we want to be treated. We want to treat others uh, as, our, as our prisoners. These men followed their sinful hearts and not one of them, not one of them showed mercy. None of the guards stood up and tried to defend these prisoners. And that's when a coin toss could have put them on the other side of the bars. It kind of sounds like us. Right? We've been forgiven much. We need to forgive others. And I will pray that we'll follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and show mercy when, if not for the grace of God, there go I. Right? They could have been on the other side of the coin toss and been on the other side of the bars. For us, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would not be sitting here right now worshiping the Lord. And that's something we need to keep in mind when it comes to favoritism, is that mercy is ultimately at the core of it. That when we see someone walking down the sidewalk, into our church, no matter who they are, whether they're the rich man or the poor man, we need to have mercy on them because it's about their soul. It's about us wanting them to know Jesus Christ and to repent and be saved. And we never want to assume that someone is saved, that they know Jesus Christ just because they look like the rich man. That's the ultimate failure that we can make 
by showing favoritism, is assume that people know Jesus Christ just because they live in America, that they're conservative Republicans, that they have an RV and a nice home, and they live in Idaho. Right? We can't assume that. And I think that's one of the major ways that we could trip up with favoritism in the coming years as people file into the Treasure Valley over and over again. These political refugees coming here from other states, right? And we assume when they land, they're coming here because they're Christians, man, and they want to see the Bible preached. Not necessarily, right? We know the way is narrow. And so let's not assume anything about anyone. I want to go back to the last few words as we wrap up here in verse 8. The last few words of verse 8 said, you are doing well. And I just want to say to Compass Bible Church, you are doing well. With all this talk about favoritism and the intensity of the sin that favoritism is, I want to say this church does a great job at not playing favorites. I really believe that. I've been here since the beginning, and I've seen, and I, and I wasn't a pastor at the beginning, and I've seen you step up and come alongside people and love them well, despite who they are. You haven't looked at the exterior. You've looked at the interior. So I want to say, well done. You guys are doing well. But here's my warning as we wrap up. Let's be on guard. Let's be on guard. I, I think it's providential that the last sermon of 2020 landed in James 2, 1 through 13. I really do. Because the enemy will use every worldly system and category to try to divide us as a church. We've seen it already. We've seen it throughout the valley. It's not just our church. It's the church around the world. Divided over political topics. Divided over health topics. Divided over everything the enemy can get his hands on. So we need to be on guard. Because I think this is going to be a temptation for us in the coming years. And if we categorize people in our church as less than because of the choices they make in politics, they make in health, they make with school choices, or whatever it might be, we could go on and on. Then we will succumb to playing favorites and falling into dangerous sin. So we need to be prayerful more than ever. Let's never be people who think we know someone is who someone is by the time that they walk down the sidewalk. I've said that several, morning, several times this morning. Right? We never want to assume. The good news is you and I don't have to get into some stuffy conference room and come up with some, you know, some, some categories on, on what clients we choose as a marketing company, right? We already know what the game plan is because God has given it to us. We already know how to interact with people and where to go, where to guide them, where to bring them to. We overlook the exterior. We overlook all the top, hot topics in the culture to get to the gospel. Is that your heart? Is that my heart? Are we constantly trying to get to the gospel? Or do we park on the hot topic of the culture. Remember that James has been talking to us about tests. As we wrap up today, we want to remember, as we've been in the book of James four times now, he's given us four tests. The first test was trials, right? Trials are a test. The second test was that of temptation. The third test that we went through was the test of how we handle the word of God, the Bible. What do we do when we're presented the truth of the word of God? How do we respond to that? And today, he describes the test of partiality. And this is going to be an important test to pass in 2021. So I would just ask you to pray. Put this on your prayer list. Be more prayerful about this exact sin, this exact temptation, this exact test in the coming year. 
Because as we see more and more people come down that sidewalk and into this church and into our lives, we need to make sure that we play zero favorites and our whole goal is to get them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we are not put here in a foreign place as sojourners, citizens of heaven, to wander around without direction. Lord, you gave us your Bible. Lord, and we live in the greatest time, I believe, to be a Christian where we have the full canon of Scripture, Lord. We have the Holy Spirit. Lord, we have every means possible to bring people into our homes and into our lives to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not play favorites. Lord, help us not to just cozy up to the people who can help us get something, who can make us more comfortable or raise our status. Lord, help us to be on the lookout for those who can't help themselves, Father. And ultimately, we know, Lord, whether it's opportunity or money or wealth or whatever it might be, the ultimate problem that every person has that comes into this church or into this valley is that they have a sin problem. Lord, and we want to help them overcome that sin problem by the only way they can, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, by your blood, Jesus. They can put their trust in you and be forgiven for eternity, to be reconciled to you. Lord, help us not to become so familiar with that, that we stop talking about it as if it's the greatest thing ever to exist. Lord, the greatest gift we have ever received is you, Jesus. And help us to share that with others, Lord. We get so excited about so many things in our life, and we're so excited to share that with others, Lord. Help us to have that same vigor with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know you more, to have a high view of you, to understand who you are, that you play zero favorites. You have no partiality within you, Lord. Lord, you came to save everyone. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to remember that salvation through Jesus Christ is the ultimate leveler of the playing field. Lord, help us to have a high view of you and a right view of sin. As we go out this week, help us to pray more. Help us to be the most prayerful we've ever been as a church this next year. Lord, as the world burns around us, consumed with sin, help us to thrive as a church. Help others to peek inside and want to know why we have a hope despite there being no hope in the systems of this world. We know it's because of you, Jesus. Help us. Help us to be able to put into practice these things. Help us to be changed by your word, Lord. Lord, and as we turn the clock to a new year, help us to not have false hope in some kind of miracle that happens when the year changes, knowing that Difficulty could be ahead, Lord, but you've given us the recipe to navigate that. Or despite the difficulties in this world, even to this point in James, Lord, you've given us how to handle trials, how to handle temptations, how to handle the truth of your word, and how to handle the temptation to show favoritism. Help us, Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless. Have a wonderful new year.